Before we jump into today's topic, a quick disclaimer. The stories and data we share come from the states that we practice in and the experiences that we personally had, which can differ greatly across our country and certainly the globe. This is not a professional advice show. So let's get comfy and talk about death. Welcome to Mort Mike, a down-to-earth discussion on death and dying. I'm Jem. And I'm Red, and we're your guides to the grieving this week. It's the best of times and the worst of times, the highs and the lows, our favorite and our least favorite parts of our jobs. So we're going to start off on a high note first. Um, my favorite part of being a funeral director is getting down and getting dirty. I love embalming, and I love doing presentation of deceased from dressing, casketing, all the way through cosmetizing hair if necessary all of that stuff there's something super like therapeutic about it to me like cathartic almost i was growing up artsy i was a theater kid i loved art class and so doing like cosmetics and like restoration always allows me to get back to those roots that i love so much i'm a person that also thrives on a lot of feedback and there's no more immediate feedback than when a family is reacting to your work at a first view. It's the most nerve-wracking thing ever, but it's also the most rewarding part of my day. There's minor restorations that can be done with every person, not just major facial reconstruction, which I like both equally. But the case that sticks with me the most in this respect, um, it was a ship-in um, that our firm had that was uh, flying in from New York. So this person was already uh, prepared, embalmed, casketed, and even had like services out in New York before he was put on a plane to us where the other part of the family would have services here before he was buried. We were warned that he didn't look super good before death. And so like the local family was pretty like understanding like, okay, we might need to close the casket if he's kind of hard to look at. And I was like, actually, honestly, completely shocked when I opened the casket for the first time. Like, absolutely shocked. Like, and that's me having seen, you know, d trauma cases, like, coming in from car crashes and stuff like that. I was just appalled how he looked. And, like, I try not to pass super hard judgment on what may or may not have been done right during embalming because, like, I wasn't there myself. I didn't see his condition beforehand. And there's, like, a lot of variables to consider. But, like, even down to, like, little nitpicky stuff, I found his cosmetics were lazy, and I just felt so bad. This this poor little emaciated man, um, he was desiccated in some spots, which is uh, a fancy word for drying out. Mm -hmm. So, like, similar to what you would expect from, like, um, a mummy, you know, where it's, like, the really tight skin and it's, like, discolored. Um, the temples were sunken. His clothes weren't even fit to his tiny frame. And maybe you know what this is, Jem. I actually have no idea what this is to this day. He had this huge dip in his skull. It was about the size of a softball cut in half. 
And I'm not sure what that condition might be. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that to me. And I'm honestly not sure unless he had some sort of, you know, surgery before death. Was he autopsied? No, he wasn't autopsied at all. And I've only ever seen it one time since. And I still don't know like what it is because it was like up on the, like the very top of his head, like halfway back and halfway up. Yeah, sometimes what they do just very quickly is they cut out a piece of your skull in order to relieve some of the pressure in your brain. So they literally create a hole in your skull and they just kind of sew your skin back together on top of it. And it helps with some of the pressure if you have some intracranial pressure. But that's all I can think of, honestly. That's wild. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But either way, I would have been absolutely terrified to see my like father or grandfather this way. So I, you know, got it in my mind. I'm like, okay, I need to do something about this. Like, there's no way I'm going to let this be their final goodbye. And so two hours later, half a bottle of feature builder and a container of modeling wax, I was actually able to keep the casket open. The family was super pleased with everything. Um, They were able to say goodbye to their grandpa looking at least a little bit better than he did before. So like that moment was a huge turning point for me in like my career of like never say it's good enough. Like always try your best and you can make an entire family's you know, day, week, year, lifetime. Absolutely. It's it's really powerful stuff. So did you have to just sculpt some of his features kind of back together as it were in life, kind of? So the the worst part was that I didn't have a photo to go on. So Uh, I'm just like, uh, okay, what would look somewhat like plump everything up a little bit so like taking the feature builder in a syringe and feature builder is like this kind of uh viscous gel that once it hits um you inject it into the skin and it hits any type of moisture it starts to like jelly up and so you get like a few seconds to be able to kind of push it around underneath the skin and then it'll like solidify where you have it so it's basically like botox for like dead people (laughs) yeah it does end up looking pretty natural because in death like yeah your skin gets sunken you know if you were very sick like maybe you lost a lot of weight so um it's not really it's not like super crazy celebrity botox but it definitely helps (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Especially when you have like sunken in temples, things like that. It makes a world of difference just to put a little bit of feature builder in. But I ended up feature building his entire face. The oh my whole, gosh. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> it was a lot. I feel bad putting that many holes in his face, but it ended up looking really good. But besides that, then I used the modeling wax to be able to fill in that big old, big old hole in his head. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I was able to give him a little bit of a comb over and I actually couldn't really tell after that. So I was I was very pleased with the results. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think, you know, trying to do your best to give the family a good experience as good as it can be in such a hard time like this is extremely important as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that their family in New York was already calling ahead and saying, oof, you guys might not want to show the kids, you know, kind of thing. So like to be able to, I know, turning it on his head, his head like that was nice to be able to be like, aha, surprise, I did a good job. (laughs) Get to see grandpa. (laughs) So I was very happy for that family. They were really sweet. So what about you, Jim? What's your favorite part of the job? Actually kind of going off of that. So yeah, I think keeping the family in mind um, when we have jobs like working with death every day is really important. Um, As I was sitting down preparing for this episode, I honestly had such a hard time thinking of my most 
favorite aspect of the job um, because I just love every part of my job, especially, you know, talking to the families, getting to do autopsies, you know, getting to work with and take care of the deceased. Of course, there's ups and downs, but, you know, I absolutely loved every experience I've had as a mortician, a body removal technician, autopsy assistant, even the cemetery sales representative job I had. I will say my favorite thing to do on the job is definitely autopsies, but that's a whole big fun can of worms, and I can't really go into every uh, aspect that I love right now, so I'm going to force Red to give me a whole episode on that later. Awesome. Um, I'm excited. (laughs) So I wanted to keep the family vibe going, and one thing that I do say time and time again is how much I absolutely love talking to families and how important it is to get them involved with the death and answer their questions questions and kind of make sure that they're at ease and having, you know, the best possible experience that they can have with something so traumatic and raw. Um, So one of my first experiences in the death care industry was doing transfers, um, which is a fancy word for picking up the deceased. And that has consistently been one of my favorite aspects of the job. And I know Red will tell you otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) But I think for some reason, I just like love being there in that like really just raw emotional moment. And I don't know why, because it is uncomfortable and it's hard to know what to say. But I feel like I'm just really good at it. And I love doing it. And I love going to the families and talking to them. It's always different for every family, you know. There's a family that's like sobbing uncontrollably. There's a family that's just like stoic, stonewall, dead quiet, won't say a single word, like no emotions whatsoever. I think that's the hardest one, to be honest. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. When it's just like you're giving your spiel and you're just trying to connect and they're just like, no, you cannot. Yeah, <laughs> Do but not that's, pass this barrier. <laughs> yeah. And that's a grief reaction, you know, so you can't blame them. And of course, there's a family that's like you know throwing a party like hey do you want us to help and it's like I'm, no no you're good like are you sure that everything's okay you know what i mean right ever go on a transfer where they're actually drinking yeah <laughs> actually get those a party lot down. So. and you know all of those things are totally perfectly okay if that's your way to cope with something and if that's your way to commemorate someone and celebrate someone's life like more power to you So one of the things that I always tried to do, especially when I was working with the body removal company, um, talking to these families firsthand, I would basically let them run the show unless it was unsafe or there was some sort of um, weird sort of response going on. Um, Basically, whatever the family wanted, I was up for. There's families who want to help, like I said. Some will wait in the other room, laughing, crying, and sometimes even families that'll let me pet their cats and dogs if I I ask. Uh, I think I had a couple families even ask me if I wanted to adopt some of their animals that poor grandma left behind. (laughs) But I think one of my favorite interactions that I will always remember to this day Um, So I went on a pickup um, in the middle of the night, you know, no one really wants to get up at 3am and put a suit on, but that's exactly what we have to do in the death industry. And um, my director 
uh, warned me that it was a younger person who had died. And those are usually extremely, extremely, extremely difficult pickups to do, transfers to do. More often than not, the parents are there, you know, absolutely shattered. It's their child. And one thing that I'll always remember that they actually taught us in mortuary science school is that um, the grief of a parent who's lost a child is technically called anomic grief. And anomic means without a name. So it's uh, technically called grief without a name because it's just an indescribable thing that parents experience losing their child. It's like the wrong order of operations. So it's exactly. un- un- very unnatural. Yeah. You know, you always hear parents say that they never want to, you know, experience the death of their child. They never want their child to die before them. Um, so anyways, I'm driving to this house. I'm getting ready, you know, prepping myself up like, okay, like this is going to be hard. You have to be really nice. I mean, obviously, you have to be <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a difficult situation. I'm going to have to be, you know, so careful with what I say. I'm going to have to be so gentle. And so I pull up to the house with my um, partner, my coworker. Um, two people usually go out on scenes like this. Um, first thing I do, I don't bring any of my equipment in with me usually. I walk up to the house, knock on the door, um, introduce myself, and we're here to pick up you know, the deceased. Um, so I knock on the door and I start hearing some like noises. And it was kind of strange because usually it's a pretty quiet scene. So um, someone opens the door And there's just like a wall of like music and laughter and just so much noise. And at that moment, I was completely like, what is, am I at the right house? Like, what is happening? (laughs) Because that's just not, you know, something to expect during a call like this. So I think it was like the aunt or something that answered the door. And I was like, you know, hello, I'm from so-and-so funeral home. Um, We're here for insert child's name here and she was like oh yeah come in you know we're just you know singing a song like we'll be done soon like yeah we're like almost ready for you just come on in and like hang out like it'll be totally fine and I was like um yeah okay sure and so my you know partner was I think he was a trainee he was a little bit less experienced than me and he was just like didn't say a single word the entire time I think he was totally shocked deer in headlights yeah deer in the headlights sort of thing So we walk in to this tiny front living area and there's probably at least like 20 people like crammed into this room and there's adults, there's family members, there's friends. I think there's like grandma and grandpa um, and there's kids. And that was the one thing that I was like, wow, like this is really, really different. There were kids running around and I think that they were, you know, friends and siblings of this um, little girl who had passed away. She had had a brain tumor. She'd been very sick for a very long time. So they were expecting this. Um, They actually had her real wooden bed set up in the middle of the living room. Usually it's a hospital bed, but it was her real like child-sized bed, which I thought was really sweet. So anyways, the the mom is like singing karaoke. The dad (laughs) is like playing with the kids and like they're standing around the bed and just having like a great time. And I just like, I will always remember like how like special and unique that moment was to me kind of really changed my views on like a death positive atmosphere and like it doesn't always have to be so like doom and gloom like very very you know depressing kind of thing it was a celebration of this little girl's life and the parents were very involved they wanted to be very involved and they were you know making sure all the kids said goodbye everyone had a chance to say goodbye 
I told them that they could take their time, you know, do whatever they needed to do. And the dad comes up to me and he asks, can I please, you know, carry her out of the home? I want to carry her out of the home. And, you know, he wasn't, it was, it wasn't a medical examiner scene. He wasn't going to harm her. I knew that he knew how to carry his child. So of course he can do that. Why would I say no? If it's a safe environment and these people need this to, you know, this is their process of grieving, like, absolutely, like, I 100% will let you do this. So I actually didn't bring any of my equipment into the home. I had my partner go out and set up the cot outside of our van, just right outside the van, so the father could lay down his little girl on the cot when he got out there. So I walked with the father just to, you know, make sure that he was fine and, you know, not going to drop her or anything like this. And he laid her down on the cot and we, you know, covered her up with a blanket. You know, I told him that we would take care of her. I felt like I was part of the grieving process with this family. And it was one of the most positive death experience I think I've ever had. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. That's honestly super incredible. I'm interested to see what that trainee had to say afterwards. <laughs> he was a little shook for sure. But he he was a good kid. He um he got, he got it after a while. But it's you know, it's definitely just something that we rarely if ever see in the death industry. And I honestly really appreciated it. And I think that a lot of people can learn from that kind of experience. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Because there's something that you know, comes up very often uh, with grief is that the farther we distance ourselves from the processes that surround death, it makes the grief more complicated. So any chance that anybody gets to be involved with the process, whether it's, you know, helping with the transfer or like coming in to do mom's hair, anything like that, it's so important, even down to something as simple as like a rose laying ceremony on the casket at the cemetery. It's great to get people involved. Absolutely. Unfortunately, though, not all transfers go as beautifully and life-changingly as that. (laughs) (laughs) And you are correct, which kind of segues into what I have to say now with my least favorite part of the job. So I've already hinted at it in previous episodes, especially this one. My least favorite aspect of funeral service is transfers. I hate Hate, 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 hate (laughs) transfers so bad, especially home transfers. And uh, I'm going to set the scene for you as to why. This is going to be very stark uh, contrast to what Jem just told us. I'm ready. So get hunkered down, put your headphones on, close your eyes. I'm going to set the scene. Your phone chirps. It's a first call. The family seems to have dried their tears and is waiting for you at the home to come get their grandmother. You ask if there will be any special concerns with getting in and out of the house. They only mention a few stairs. You and your teammate gather your equipment, then depart together into the company transfer van. You pull up to a small, one-story bungalow in suburbia, immediately noting the five stairs into the house and the twisting pathway leading up to them. You can hear yipping as you approach. Upon entering the home... The smell hits you before you can even get out a greeting and a condolence. You've smelled this before. You've done this many times. You're the unfortunate soul who gets to deal with a hoarder house. Your ankles are now being decimated by snarling chihuahuas. You mourn your freshly polished shoes. The family is sitting around the only table not overwhelmed with a collection of junk. Cigarette in every hand. Ashtrays piled high. Causing a foul mist to hang in the air. You try to ignore the darting insects moving underfoot 
as one of the kin leads you precariously past stacks of miscellany through the hallway, with more tight turns than a NASCAR track. Back to a bedroom that Grandma passed away in. She's on the floor, half slumped, face down in the bed. She's 350 pounds. You stifle a sigh. You wish you would have brought the oversized cot. The dogs are still barking. Your back aches in preparation for the journey ahead. And scene. And that is not even to mention decomposed cases on transfers. I would rather <laughs> back to back to back embalm three post-autopsies by myself and then do another home transfer. <laughs> oh, I know. And those are always so unfortunate. Um, the hoarder house ones and like the animal hoarding ones. You know, like I never ever want to. It's it's really a mental illness. And I never want to say anything bad about these people. Like they're really just struggling in their own way. But it's just a very unpleasant experience to have to drag a 350 pound dead person out of that home like i am so sorry it it's and it's so sad because you know like the family feels kind of embarrassed when like they walk you in and it's just it's a lot for everybody a lot of of times the family's like we had no idea how bad this was like i don't you know this is this is terrible and i'm like yes it absolutely is terrible and i'm so sorry like (laughs) right exactly because they're the ones that are going to have to clean and sell that house so that's much worse (laughs) i think about that a lot too i love cleaning i'm like a neat freak so i think about like i don't know just like that's so much it's a lot i know i'm not usually a germaphobe unless i'm in a situation like that and then i'm like double gloving (laughs) also by the way rude the i think the cutoff for like thinking about this one funeral director is coming to your home and you do not tell them that they're gonna have to lift 300 pounds like almost by themselves like uh you need to you need to tell someone i don't think families think about that but it's definitely like a must yeah definitely like it happens all the time either that or like nursing staff will severely underestimate the weight of somebody like oh yeah Yeah. she's 250 pounds and you show up and she's 600 hospitals (laughs) yeah hospitals do it too all the time oh yeah and you know the cots that we have are like flimsy little things like made for like people from the 1940s that weighed like 160 pounds max it's what they have oversized cots now like special made like oversized cots for the you know growing overweight american population and a lot of funeral homes have them but they're so big they don't just carry them around everywhere so right exactly and to be honest it's almost getting to the point that those are even too small (laughs) yeah If there's one thing I learned in this industry, it's that you die how you lived. So as Red described earlier, if you're living in a hoarder house, you're going to die in that hoarder house. If you're living as a 400-pound person, you're probably going (laughs) to die a 400-pound person. And... um, you know, something has to happen to you when you die. You don't just like magically teleport to the funeral home and everything's great and everyone's happy and the funeral director can take care of you. Um, someone has to come get you. So like Red said, least favorite part of the job is transfers for Red. Okay. Um, there are some transfers that do make my job uh, less pleasant, less happy than I usually like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> And I think any anyone who works in the death industry will say this. 
So more more so in the medical examiner vein of things, we do experience a lot of firsthand uh, death scenes of a decomposing person, someone who hasn't been found for weeks to months. I think once we had someone who hasn't been seen in like a year. Oh my God. And... How is their rent paid for? <laughs> <laughs> And people that just live in unhealthy or unsafe living environments. And it's honestly sometimes shocking to see how these people live. And I don't think people realize that, you know, when they die, if they didn't want someone to see how they're living, people are going to see how you're living. And honestly, a lot of toilet deaths. Uh, you may <laughs> laugh. Now. <laughs> you may laugh now, but... Uh, I'd say about 60 to 70% of people over a certain age have their last moments on or near their porcelain throne. <laughs> um, as a medical examiner, uh, I think a lot of these deaths are attributed to, you know, the famous commode cardiac, which is scientifically called the Valsalva maneuver. Is that how you say it? Valsalva maneuver, yes. Okay. <laughs> which Red actually uh, reminded me to talk about. So for some reason, a lot of people, you know, die in the toilet. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, excuse my language, but bearing down and increasing that <laughs> blood pressure. <laughs> what a nice way to say that. <laughs> mm. So anyways, it is, you know, increasing your heart rate, increasing, you know, pressure inside your body. I'm not sure of the exact mechanics right now, but, you know, Elvis did it, so why can't you? <laughs> um, and, you know, in the bathtub, I think a lot of people, it's an unpleasant place to die, especially if there's water involved. But uh, believe it or not, we definitely have a lot of people that die in bathtubs. And this actually leads me to um, my absolute least favorite part of my job human soup. And if you are uh, a little bit squeamish, you don't really like to hear about these kind of things, you know, this is a person that we're going to be talking about. Um, you can go ahead and skip to the end, but I highly recommend you don't because I feel like everyone uh, should probably at least learn a little bit about this. So if you die in your bathtub, which um, a surprising amount of people do, and let's say you live by yourself, no one really finds you for a while, Things start to happen, um, especially in water. I think bodies decompose at a faster or at least different rate than when they normally do in open air um, when they are in water. So my story starts when I'm working as a medical examiner investigator. We get a call. You know, the police are usually kind of like, uh, you know, someone died in their apartment. And we're like, okay, like, hmm. What, what's up? And they're like, well, we couldn't find any drugs. And I'm like, okay, well, what's up? And they're like, oh, well, you know, he's in the bathroom. Okay, pretty normal. Great. I also asked the police if there are any concerns. They tell me he's a little bit bigger, probably not too bad. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Then they tell me he died in the bathtub. And I'm like, oh, okay, this changes everything. That probably should have been like the first thing that they said. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> First of all, this changes it from a, maybe a cardiac death to a, oh man, did this guy drown? This might also lead into a, oh man, did someone drown this guy in his bathtub? So all of these things are going through my head. It's not just a normal um, 
cardiac death that I was thinking before anymore. So I roll up to the house. It's an apartment building. He's on the second floor. So already there's stairs. Great. And going into the apartment building, the first thing is the smell. And honestly, I don't know how people can live in an apartment building and not smell the smell of death, but you would be surprised the number of people that will not make a call, not make a complaint um, for days to weeks if there's like a terrible smell in their apartment and they haven't seen Mr. Jenkins for a while. Like, it's really astounding, to be honest. Agreed. We see that in, like, serial killer cases constantly. Like, they get away with it for so long. How do you not know what death smells like? It's And they're in an apartment building. It's crazy. You're trapped in there with it. (laughs) A lot of times people are just like, oh, I thought it was the trash. I'm like, even still, I would be making complaints about the trash smell. Like, hello, people, come on. Um, so anyways, uh, first thing you smell is the smell, you know, okay, walking up the stairs, uh, we knew that he hadn't been seen for some time, but you honestly don't know when someone dies, they could have died a couple hours ago or three days ago. So we get in there, the police, the police are notoriously just not about it. They hate decomp cases. They're all standing outside. None of them want to be in there. They all have like three masks on and like, they're just Mm -hmm. like, okay, after you, like, thanks guys. Uh, So I get in there, go into the bathroom. The bathtub is full of this slimy, decomposing man. Has to be about, uh, I think, yeah, like the 350 mark. Like just really, really just not something I want to (laughs) see. And he had probably been dead for a couple days. It's kind of hard to tell, honestly. If you ever watch a TV show and they're like, this man has been dead for one hour and 32 minutes, they're lying. It's it's not possible. Especially when there's water involved. There's like so many factors there. Mm-hmm. And this, um, here's a little tip for any medical investigators out there. You always want to note where the level of the water is. This is extremely, extremely important. Um, If you include this in your report, your medical examiners are going to love you because the level of where the water is on the deceased, what what body parts it's covering, um, that might help them determine if it was a drowning or if it was just a cardiac death and they died in the bathtub. So I check for the water level and there's a mark and I can see that it hasn't gone. It wasn't sitting over his mouth. It wasn't sitting over his nose. So that makes you feel a lot better. Um, we're still going to take him into the medical examiner's office. We usually do not release these kind of bodies to funeral homes from the scene, I guess just out of courtesy for you guys and also just making sure that, you know, there's not a random bullet or stab wound in him because it's so hard to tell. The skin is slipping off. They're bloated. The facial features sometimes are distorted. You can't properly identify who it is. So we often just bring these bodies in. So it's me. And as you guys can imagine, maybe from my voice, I don't know, I am not some burly macho man coming in and whipping these bodies out for the medical examiner. That is not me. I think on my good days, I'm about 5'9", maybe 140 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So these, you know, I'm here at the, you know, scene of death and these police are like, um, all right. Is, is this it? Like, are you it? Like, no, no, I have Are you voice. it? <laughs> <laughs> they do, yeah. The police give me a lot of grief. And, you know, they're, they're just doing their job. But I am not the ideal former cop medical death investigator that they are hoping for. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> 
Um, so anyways, I do have my body removal team come out, thankfully. You know, there's three of us now, so we can get this guy, right? Hopefully. Right. With the buckets <laughs> that you brought, right? <laughs> With the buckets and waiting pants. No, so actually, um, what usually we try to do with these deaths is we try to drain the tub, okay, get the water out of there. Um, and then getting the body out of the tub is one of the more difficult things to do. Even if this person was like 200 pounds, it's still really, really hard to get like a slippery, slimy, you know, your skin is sloughing off, um, person out of the tub. You can't grab their hands and pull them out. First of all, it's extremely difficult. Second of all, you're just like, like grasping at nothing. You're just, it's sliding off. Um, so a trick that one of my body removal technicians taught me once is you take two sheets and you kind of like shimmy them under the body. And then it's a one, two, three, heave, ho. And you're just like trying to get this body out of the tub with these two sheets, one under the armpits, one around the hips. And the body just comes eventually slowly crawling out of the tub and slides right into the body bag. Um, but yeah, that's how you do it. But, of course, water everywhere, just like you don't even know what's in this water. Not not a, not a great scene. Not a good scene. But yeah, least favorite part of the job right there. I'm pretty sure every funeral director, every medical, like anybody who does transfers has like the story. Like the transfer story, like worst transfer ever story. And there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and even though those experiences aren't ideal and they're messy and not fun and they smell bad and maybe you smell decomposing body for the next two days, but it really uh, is, you know, somebody has to do it, like Red said before. And if, you know, I, if you are a person that can do it and can handle it, then, you know, kudos to you. That's definitely, you know, something needed in our society that's never, ever, ever going to go away. As long as we have bathtubs, people are going to be dying in them. Yep. You can always expect uh, soup du jour, as it were. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was gross. <laughs> But yeah, just like Jem said, this profession might have its headaches, but there's so much other stuff that really makes up for it. Absolutely. And we hope you guys enjoyed um, hearing our stories today. I'm so sorry if they were a little bit much, but this is kind of the direction we want to take our podcast in. Uh, we want to talk frankly about these things. Right, exactly. And I think there's something to be said that the more that we shroud the death care industry in like a veil of mystery and intrigue, then it's just going to make grieving a harder process in the future anyway. So I think it's a really important step for all, like our society as a whole to be more involved in death and really understand what it is that goes on with it. Because back back in the day, 100 years ago, no one would blink to, to see a dead body. But today, it is almost like a traumatic experience. So we are definitely going to get more in-depth with things in the future. Um, and we will try to give warnings when a very graphic part comes up. Yeah, so thanks for joining us on this ride. And if you have any questions at all, be sure to hit us up. And that's it for this week on Mort Mike. We'd love to connect with you guys on the socials. So like, follow, and subscribe to us Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Mort Mike Podcast. That is M O R T M I C P O D C A S T. It would mean a lot to hear your feedback. So please tell us what you think in a comment or drop us a rating on whatever podcast hosting site you use. 
If you have any suggestions on topics, like Jem said, go ahead and shoot us an email at mortmikepodcast at gmail.com. I also want to thank our friend Marcin for the use of his song titled Deputies of Death, which he produced just for our show. You can check out more of his music at Marson Music. That's M-A-R-S-O-N music.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Marcin. And be sure to tune in every other week on Thursdays for more casual discussions on death. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been Mort Mike. Bye. Bye.